The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, this morning, as Paul said in the welcome, we begin a series on Colossians. Uh, we've scheduled it to be a four-month series, uh, working through week to week. And those preaching in the series, in addition to myself, will include one of our global partners, various downtown elders, and, and Pastor John. And just to comment on the, the sub-theme, the, the subtitle, I know there's a graphic that says Colossians, and then the question was, well, what do we put as a subtitle? And there's two good, I think, exegetical answers. One would be supremacy of Christ, largely from chapter one, and it's on the wall up there. And I thought, um, I think I'm going to go with the other good, solid, exegetical summary theme, and that is sufficiency. The sufficiency of Christ. And, and I'll tell you why. I'm maybe getting a little ahead of myself, but The Colossians were, 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 were looking around and, and they had begun to look around for, for helps and hopes beyond Christ, beyond the gospel, other philosophies that they could add to the gospel in order to fix it. You know, you're frustrated with your Christianity, you're just not impressed with, with what you see in the church right now, or you look at church history and see the failures and think, well, you know, there's got to be something else. So you put our hope in something else and it'll fix us. It'll fix the church. See, there's the problem. And I, I thought I could word it like that and, and say, this book is about spreading a passion for the sufficiency of Christ in all things. For the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That we would not put our hope in Jesus plus or gospel plus, but put our hope only in Christ. So that's the sub-theme. This morning I intend to bring a brief introduction to the letter by looking at these first two verses and uh, just know that the elders were one-minded in saying, yes, Colossians is the, the book, the letter that we should spend the next season in. And so let me pray for God's grace as we begin. Father in heaven, pray that you would open up this little letter to us. Probably takes 15 minutes to read. Open this up to us that this word of yours would be a means to us of your grace and your peace. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My outline's pretty simple. Four points. Number one, the occasion of the letter. Number two, the author. Number three, the recipients. And number four, the greeting. So number one, the occasion. Paul says he wrote this letter while he was in chains, chapter 4, verse 18. And you probably know that throughout Paul's ministry, he was arrested and put in prison several times, including in Philippi, in Caesarea, and in Rome. And uh, it seems best to conclude that this letter to the Colossian church was written while Paul was under house arrest in Rome, where according to Acts 28.30, commenting on that imprisonment in Rome, it says, 
he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So there you see his imprisonment doesn't shut down the gospel, but it's an occasion for the gospel to continue as he continues to teach and proclaim the gospel and he welcomes all who come to him. Well, one who came to him was Epaphras. Well, who's Epaphras? Epaphras was from the city of Colossae. And it seems that Epaphras had become a Christian through Paul's teaching when Paul was teaching in Ephesus. So apparently Epaphras came and sat in on the teaching, heard the gospel, became a Christian, and then went back to Colossae, about 100 miles east uh, of, uh, of Ephesus, and uh, by the power of the gospel, God planted a church there through Epaphras. So there's Epaphras. So then now when Epaphras comes to visit Paul under house arrest in Rome, what he brings is an update on the welfare of the Colossian church. Paul had never been there. He says it elsewhere in the letter. He's, he's never been to the church at Colossae, but he's heard about their faith from Epaphras and the love that they have for one another. This is verse, chapter 1, verse 3. And he heard about their fruitfulness in the gospel in chapter 1, verse 6. So he heard about the good things that were going on, but on the other hand, Epaphras also brought news of concerns. A false teaching had been introduced in the church, which, if not addressed, would lead people astray from Christ, would nullify the gospel, and replace it with a, a false spirituality. By illustration, we could say that Epaphras' report was the report, this is very contextual here, report of a virus that had begun in the church and had begun to spread. There were early indications of it, and yet Paul writes this letter to inoculate the church against that false teaching. So I wonder, just a comment, I, I wonder if you think like I used to think that false teachings, gospel challenges to be confronted were things of, the, of New Testament times, were things that happened, you know, like in the, in the Reformation and maybe other big historical moments in the church. And, and I, don't, I don't want you to think that way. I think that's a, that's a dangerous way to think. Because if you think that way, you won't realize that every single day we are confronted by godless, Christless, gospelless teachings and philosophies that are itching to get into our minds and shape us. It's, it's like reverse evangelism. I mean, we have the truth, we want to persuade others. Other people have philosophies, they want to persuade us. So, it's a call to be on guard as believers in our, in our day when information is so, it's more than accessible, is so to us.
And it is important to understand that it's true. No one can snatch believers out of the hands of Christ. But it's also true that the way Jesus keeps hold of his people is by faith. We are kept by the power of God through faith. So Colossians is written to strengthen our faith so that we might continue to believe in Christ and thereby Christ would hold us and keep us by the power of faith until the end. So those are the dynamics I see in the beginning. And just like the Colossian believers, we need to be anchored. This song was perfect that we just sang. I won't be able to say it off the top of my head, but my faith in Jesus anchored to the ground, my hope and sure foundation will never let me down. That's what this book is about. That's what it's about. Rooting us in Christ. Number two, author. A typical letter at, uh, at, in this time, in this era, would begin first by identifying the author and then the addressees and then an introductory greeting, which is interesting because it's, it's not like our typical letter writing, but it's more like email. You know, you get an email, you know it's who it's from, just like that. And that's how the, the letters are written in the New Testament. And yet, Paul, in going along with the pattern, he beautifully, wonderfully enriches this pattern with grace. He identifies himself as the author, Paul, and then he adds an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does he, why does he start there right after his name? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I think he's establishing he's not writing on his own authority but in the authority of Christ as an apostle. He's, he's not sticking his nose into church business where it doesn't belong. But Christ has given him this apostolic office and he's speaking in that role as one commissioned by Christ to do this very thing. So the Colossians ought not read the letter and go, Paul, it's none of your business. <laughs> No, no, no. It's his business. He's an apostle. Uh, and of this responsibility, Paul says, this is in Second Corinthians, he says that, that Christ has given him this responsibility for the building up and not for tearing down the church. So it's a beautiful role and approach that Paul wants the people to see him in, in his apostolic authority and Ministry, and then he adds, by the will of God, which in my mind underscores the fact that <laughs> Paul said, I did not put myself in this role. Jesus gave it to me when he confronted me on the road to Damascus when I was breathing out murderous threats against the church, and Jesus confronted me, turned me around, gave me faith, and gave me this commission to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Of that calling, Paul says in Galatians 1, he says, it was God who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him, Christ, 
among the Gentiles. So, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy. And where does the mention of Timothy come in? Is Timothy co-authoring this? Timothy, our brother. It doesn't seem wise to take it that Timothy is a co-author. Paul signs this in his own hand in chapter 4, verse 18. Now, this, this letter is from Paul, and, and I believe that Timothy's mentioned because he's with Paul. He's with Paul, and the Colossians probably know, know uh, Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. We're sending you greetings. In fact, Timothy may well have been the one delivering the letter. Number three, recipients. Recipients. Paul addresses the believers in the Colossian church with this beautiful description of who they are. You know, again, he never met them. But because they're in Christ, he knows them. (laughs) He knows who they are. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the saints. According to the, the Bible, the New Testament, saints refer to those set apart by God, set apart for God, consecrated by God for his purposes and for his own glory. It's, it's God, God creates saints when he sets apart a people like he did with Israel and in Christ he set us apart as his saints. And, and so, you know, in some religious traditions, a saint is someone attributed to having power to perform miracles and, and maybe power to answer prayer. And that, that teaching is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Nowhere. But rather, according to the New Testament, one doesn't become a saint due to maturity of sanctification or by, by doing miraculous things or even maturity in Christ, maturity in holiness. No, rather, the saints are people set apart by an act of God for his own glory and purposes, different from the common. Now, the New Testament uses the word saints 60 times. It's funny that we don't use it of each other. 60 times. Saints. It's always plural. Never like, you're a saint, and I'm not, (laughs) but we are saints. We are saints. For instance, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Paul's addressing the letter to the church of God that is in Corinth. Very similar. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. See how broad it is? The saints are those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with every other believer in the universe. Saints. You are saints. 
I flashed in my mind to a little video that, that uh, I took of my, of my son. One of my sons, he's about five years old. And he, he came home from being outside and, and I was shooting this video and, and I happened to say, you have a cold. And he, in the video, he just goes, I have a cold. I have a cold. I have a cold. (laughs) I want it to land on you. You are saints. I am a saint. I am a saint by the promise of the gospel and the work of Christ. Every one of you, men and women, boys and girls, all who believe, not because you earned your sainthood by your religious accomplishments, You know you're a sinner. You're a saint because by the power of the gospel, God set you apart as his very own chosen race. Holy nation. Nation of saints. That's why you're saints. So God has made you saints having qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. First, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 of Colossians. You're saints. So, like my, like my little boy, uh, I'm, I have a cold. Just, want you to, just let it grip you. I am a saint. I'm a saint. God Almighty declares me to be a, a saint in Christ Jesus. To the faithful brothers, the introduction of the recipients continues. To the saints and to the faithful brothers. The point is believing, brothers and sisters. It, faithful, believing, to the believing brothers, to the believing ones. And, and, and Paul doesn't use brothers to exclude women as we might read it in our day, but rather he's using the term in a totally cultural, culturally respectable way to refer to the fact that as believers, we are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We share this, this brotherhood, this, this sisterhood together as God's people. Now, we've been born of God, the Father. We have the indwelling of his spirit, the spirit of adoption. We, by his grace, remember, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father. We are the believing brothers and sisters. That's who Paul's addressing in, in Corinth. It's believers. And you, you probably tasted this in meeting believers whom you've never met before. You know, whether it's here in the building or whether it's on the mission field, you meet another believer and you have this instant kinship. It, it, it's a grace. It, you, know, you think, well, what is that? This sense of shared family with God as our Father that we enjoy in Christ. This, this family kinship works for, for endurance with and patience with one another and, and fidelity to one another. And it works for a, a kind of a intimacy and, and understanding one another that many times is deeper than the 
intimacy and depth of understanding that we have with our own biological family. To the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And one more in the description of the recipients. To those who are in Christ at Colossae. It's interesting. You can think of it as two dual locations. Where are you? Well, in Christ and at Colossae. <laughs> uh, let's, let's take the last one first. At Colossae. As human beings, the recipient's geographical location is the city of Colossae. Small city on a major trade route, as I said, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Ephesus would be on the Mediterranean Sea and about 100 miles inland. East would be Colossae and um, southern Turkey today. Well, as those believers have a geographic location as human beings, so too we as believers have a geographic location right now. So Paul might write us a letter to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters Minneapolis, right, right here at, at Minneapolis. I'm not talking about where you live. I'm talking about where we're gathering right here. How would you describe where we live? I used to be the pastor for neighborhood outreach and I would draw these concentric circles like one mile radius, two mile radius, five mile radius and was blown away at the <laughs> sampling of the world that is here. Let's do it this way. Looking west. It's funny. I I put in my notes, I told myself, look left. No, I need to look right. You can look left. (laughs) To the west. Uh, What do we see? Downtown Minneapolis and the business community, you know, um, businesses like like Target and Wells Fargo and Ameriprise, um, the government center, City Hall, kinds of other corporations, and, and we see also, in addition to the, the formal business community, I see the, the informal business community, the business on the street, and uh, that often works in the shadows. I see human trafficking, which isn't limited to the West, and the drug trade. But looking to the West, I see businesses and government and, and all the people involved in those companies and government and, and the trades. And looking South, that's that way. <laughs> I got that one right. I see the neighborhood I grew up in, South Minneapolis, teeming with diversity. Now Minneapolis is about 60% white, 20% black, 10% Latino and Hispanic and 10% other, including Asian and other ethnicities. Looking south, I see the George Floyd Memorial and remember the rioting that was a catalyst to the global protests around the, the world. And although Minneapolis is the city of lakes and beautiful parks like Lake Nicomas, one that I grew up riding my bicycle around, It's also a city of seemingly intractable homelessness. 
camping out sometimes in those very same parks and parkways. Looking east, I see both the University of Minnesota with its mere 50,000 students from all over the world and its faculty, and, and, and I'm mindful of all the other local colleges and faculty and students around the Twin Cities. But I also see Cedar Riverside, and it reminds me that we're a, a U.S. gateway city for immigrants and refugees. And uh, there's something distinctly American about that. Um, we're a land that was once inhabited by the Dakota Native Americans, and then European immigrants came, and then former slaves migrated to the north. And now we're being joined by others from all over the world. Do, do you know, I wonder if you know this, that, that we are now home to the most Somalis in any city in, in America, the most Hmong, the most Oromo Ethiopians, and the most Karen Burmese in any city in the U.S., not to mention all the other immigrant groups. Looking north, behind me, I see the new urban dwellers, call them that, new urban dwellers. I see that, that, that boom in, in downtown housing. I mean, it's not just there, but, but the boom comes to my mind when I look along the Mississippi River and, and see the, I won't even guess how much they cost, but the, see the high-rises coming up. And uh, as more and more people see the city center as an appealing place to live, and that has not diminished by the, the upheaval in the city, as more and more people come to see city center living as desirable, that neighborhood is going to increase for us. So there, there you go. Just looking each way. Uh, you can do the same ponder what comes to your mind about where we live. Our church gathers in Minneapolis. That's just some general thoughts. Home of the Guthrie Theater and Orchestra Hall and countless other theater and concert venues. Home of the Swedish Institute and the world's only Somali History Museum. It's on Lake Street. Home of the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. And if you're more modern the Walker Arts Center, and other galleries. Home of Glamdoll Donuts, one of the uh, top 10 donut places in the U.S. on one list, and the Isles and Bun Coffee, which many of you probably know, and countless restaurants. Home of many professional sports teams, most of which seem to get stuck in the playoffs, usually in the first round, except the Lynx. And we're described as a highly educated, generous people, high volunteerism, high level of adoptions, and on and on. And most of the human beings that live in this space with us do not know Christ. And therefore, we're smack dab in the middle of a needy mission field. 
It's not all about us, is it? It's about the glory of Christ through us who gather for worship at Minneapolis. As important as it is to embrace the geographic location that we are worshiping in, it is infinitely more important to affirm and embrace the other location of the church in Christ. We are in Christ. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Paul uses that phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus 48 times in his letter in his letters. Big deal. Why so much? So I think to Paul it is a wonderful, beautiful gospel summary of what it means to be a Christian. As a believer, you are one who has been united to Christ. You are in Christ and all the blessings of God's grace and mercy and fullness that Christ has, you have because you're in it. You're in Christ. Because you're in Christ, it means God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Ephesians 1.4 God did so not because of your works, but because of his own purpose, in, purpose and grace. 2 Timothy 1.9 Because you're in Christ, God has granted you redemption by the death of his son, the forgiveness of all your sins because you're in Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. Because you're in Christ, Galatians three twenty six. you are all sons of God through faith. That is, children of God in the honored place of the one and only Son of God the Father, male and female. That's who we are in Christ. And lastly, not lastly, there's more. This is just my summary. You're in Christ, and nothing in all the world can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's rich. <laughs> this description of who we are. And it just floors me that Paul could have written this to us. He, doesn't know, he never met us either. But it'd be just as true. Because he knows Christ in the gospel. And therefore he knows these things about us. Number four, greeting. So, so far we've reflected on Paul as the author and the recipient. And now this greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. I, I never saw a pattern, this pattern in Paul's letters that I'm about to explain until I read Pastor John's book, Future Grace, a long time ago. And, and I'm just going to read it to you because he makes this observation that all of Paul's letters begin with grace to you and then they end with grace be with you. 
not an accident. Why would that be? Here's what Pastor John writes in the book Future Grace. At the beginning of his letters, Paul has in mind that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace to the readers. Grace is about to flow from God through Paul's writings to the Christians. Grace to you. But as the letter, as, as the end of the letter approaches, Paul says, grace be with you. With you. As you put the letter away and leave the church. With you. As you go home to deal with a sick child and an unaffected, an unaffectionate spouse. With you as you go to work and face the temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust. With you as you muster the courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So here's my hope and my prayer as you, I could say it in two ways. Number one is you pick up the Bible, but let me get specific. As we give ourselves to the, this letter to the Colossians, my hope and prayer is that you would lean in with an expectancy, a hope that God would be true to this word, that there would be a grace and peace for you in this letter. I mean, so, so the attitude that you would have in, in, in looking at Colossians uh, you know, throughout the week and, and, and coming to these sermons as me and the elders preach would be leaning in, expecting like, God, I know you have grace for me and I know you have peace for me. I want to receive it. And then, then when you leave, grace be with you through the week till we gather again. So, let me pray. And we're about to go to the Lord's table. And I'll set that up in just a minute. Father in heaven, I do pray you be with us in this series. Colossians. The sufficiency of Christ or Christ's sufficiency. Just burn it in, I pray. I trust that you'll meet us week in and week out with new measures of your grace and new measures of your peace that you have for us in this letter. It's clear. I pray that we would be open and responsive to it and you would pour it out in lavishness, the lavishness of your grace. So be with us now as we go to the Lord's table. Pray that we would do so with authenticity and I pray that you build our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 
1-800-285-55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.